This is KMTT. Today, on Mondays, we have a shear of Harav Yemen Tavori, who this year will be examining different responses, Shalotu Chuvot, from the major ones from the 18th and 19th century. Harav Tavori. The past few weeks, we have discussed the Chuvos of the Gedolim, of the Chassam Sofer, Rebbe Kiveger, the Noda Bihuda, whose origins in the areas of Hungary, Poland, Russia, were well known. Today we'll discuss one of the leading figures of German Jewry, a little bit later. Rebbe Yaakov Etlinger, known as the Aruch Lener, or the Binyan Tzion, was born in Germany, Chavtet Adar Rishon, Tavkuf Nunchet, 1798. He learned with his father, and afterwards learned with three of the greatest Rabbanim in Germany at that, at that time, one of them whose name I knew well, Rabbi Avram Bing. He registered and went to university in Würzburg while he was studying in the yeshiva there, but he did not complete his studies there. He left because of anti-Semitic outbursts in that area. In 1826, when he was 28 years old, he was appointed Rav of a district, a, a number of communities together. In Mannheim, he founded his yeshiva. There were many students in that yeshiva. Many of them became the leaders of the Orthodox German community. Among the most famous of, the, of them was Rav Shemeshom Hirsch. He also was a, a Rav, Rav Yaakov Etlinger was the Rav of Rav Aziel Hildesheimer. He became the Rav in Altuna in 1836. He stayed in Altuna until his Petira in 1871. At the time that he came to Altuna, it seems to have been under the rule of the Danish government. They gave Rev. Etlinger special jurisdiction over Dinimamonos. When Prussia took over the area, they met with Rev. Jakob Etlinger, were impressed with him, and renewed those rights. His famous svarim, as I said before, are the Aruch Lener, or number of Mesechtos of Shas, <coughs> Bikurei Yaakov, or the laws of Lulav Sukkah, and Shuvas Binyan He also printed Drashos. His speech, his speeches were well known, a leader of the Neo-Orthodoxy, a tremendous fighter, against the reform, against modernity. Recently, let's say the past 20, 25 years, there have been new editions of Isfarim. The Aruch came out a number of times as a set, and the Binyan Tzion was printed and then reprinted by one of his descendants, Rav Yuda Aaron Horowitz. In this edition, there is a an introduction which tells 
part of the life and history of Rav Etlinger. It's obvious that he was held in great esteem by the Gedolim of his generation. The Hespedim that were written, the letters that were writ- written to him, the, ch- the Sheilot that were written to him from places as far widespread as America, as London, uh, of course in the area of Germany, Eretz Israel, all turned to Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger to be the Poseik. He was known as the Gon Hador, Hagodol Mofes Hador, Peer Teferis Israel. But it's interesting to note how the, this Rav Horowitz, in his introduction to the Binyan Sion, relates to the fact that Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger did study in university. And he writes that many people, and I'm honestly not familiar with this type of literature, but he says some people wrote about his studying in university in Würzburg with tremendous exaggeration. In order to reject their speculations, I wanted to write, says the Rav Horowitz, a, a letter which was written as a hesped for Rav Etlinger from one of the friends who learned with him in Würzburg. He talks about, of course, the diligence and sitkus of Rav Etlinger, but then he says it was only a few hours and a few days of the week that he would go to study secular subjects. Because of the needs of the generation and importance to know general knowledge and to know how to answer the people who turned to the left, Apikarsim, etc. But even then, he never stopped learning. He never was left any involvement in Torah mitzvahs. And he generally did not sleep until very late at night. The author of the, this partial biography also wrote that we have a family tradition that whenever he went to a lecture, before the lecture, he would pray that he would not be influenced by these lectures. He writes in, in his book, in one of the books of Drushos, the Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger wrote that they could, these studies could lead you to losing your soul. In a sefer called Melitze Eish, written by Avram Stern, who was a Rav in Hungary, in there, in that book, he writes about the Gedolim of the generation, but he did not mention anyone who has any connection to the Haskala movement. He wrote about Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger. He was a great Gaon who lived a life of asceticism. He fought a battle against Haskala, against the new movements. He fought it tooth and nail in order to protect our, our tradition. The line that interested me the most in this book, Melitze Eish, it is quoted as saying that he said he's very distressed that he did study other subjects because he felt that this study of other areas tastes tam eres shel 
the poison of the original snake. And he talks against the Haskalah very strongly. Now, I'm not familiar with the book that was written, or the articles that were written by Rabbi Yaakov Ettinger, except for this introduction written by Rav Harowitz, but it's interesting to note how he emphasizes that Rabbi Yaakov Ettinger did not really approve of the university studies, and he found excuses for why he went, and it seems that he regretted having gone in the first place. We'll study today some of the more famous tshuvos that appeared in the first chilek of Binyan Tzion. The Binyan Tzion, the first volume of the tshuvos, was printed by Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger as the Rav of, of, of Altuna. Another volume of tshuvos and the third volume later were apparently pr- printed posthumously. People collected and, and Rav Harwitz is still trying to collect uh, according to the introduction, more tshuvas of him, of his, the second volume was printed by the son of the Aruch Lanier, who did print it in Tafresh Lamed Chet, uh, six years after the Aruch Lanier passed away. The first tshuva that we're going to discuss today is one that was very well known. A tshuva it was written from Yerushalayim. There was a Tamit Chacham in Yerushalayim who <coughs> was Rav Asher Lemel, who told of a story that happened in Yerushalayim. A certain gear went and had a bris on Tuesday. Everything is fine. He accepted Torah mitzvahs, but on Friday he did not feel well enough to go to the mikveh. So we have a situation here of a ger, a ger who did have a bris, but he did not go to mikveh. So they, it was told to this Rav Asher that the fellow in question was very careful about mitzvahs, and even though he's a cholesh, even though he's considered ill, but he will not allow a, a non-Jew to, to light the fire for him in his house. Uh, Rav Etling, the Rav Lemel replied, not only can he do malacha on Shabbos, but he has to do malacha on Shabbos. Because the din is that a non-Jew is not allowed to keep Shabbos. A Jew must keep Shabbos. So I told him to go do malacha on Shabbos. They immediately went to him, and he did it. The potential gear listened to the advice of Rav Ashalemel, and he wrote some letters on Shabbos. When this the word got around Yerushalayim, the Chachmei Sfarad and Chachmei Ashkenaz, the Rabbanim of Yerushalayim, all said this is something new, nobody ever heard it. How could it possibly be? He accepted mitzvahs at the time of the bris. He already had a bris. He's just waiting temporarily in order to go to the mikveh, in order to feel better. How could it be? And they say, we know many cases such a thing happened, and nobody ever suggested such a thing, and I could, how could I do it? How could I suggest the thing? I know now, says Rav Ashelemel, that I should have consulted first. But it was late. It was Mincha in the afternoon, Shabbos Mincha. And I thought it was so simple. I didn't think there was any problem at all. 
And I thought it's a mitzvah for him to be Michal Shabbos. So I would like to ask Rav Yaakov Etlinger what he would say about this question. I, Rav Yaakov Etlinger said, I investigated other places and asked what they did. And they told me they never heard of this before. A person who went to have a bris kept Shabbos. Now, it seems that the argument of Avashalama makes a lot of sense. But on the other hand, says Rabbi Akavetlinger, how could a person say that a person who entered the bris, he made a bracha kores habris, Shabbos is considered a bris, and after we entered one bris, I'm going to allow him to violate the other bris? So Rabbi Akavetlinger suggested a chedesh. Even though this person did not convert completely, but nevertheless, he was removed from the non-Jewish world by having a bris. He suggests here an idea that's found in other Sfarim, that there's a difference between Mila and Tvila. Mila represents a break from the past. He's no longer connected to Umar Sa'ulam, but he did not complete the Geirus until Tvila. But the part of removing himself from a non-Jew was accomplished already. And if that's true, then they do not enter the category of being a Nachri Shashavas. He's not a non-Jew. He is somehow in an in-between stage. This Chiddush of, Rabbi, of the Aruchaner about the in, in-between stage is interesting that one could really posit more precisely what exactly is done by the Mila and by the Tefillah. Mori Verabi Harav Lichtenstein wrote about this in a in an article in Kovetz Toshe Balpeh when he wrote when he wrote about Gerut as Leida U Mishpat and there he mentioned in a footnote the disting, distinctions between Mila and Tvila and of course referred us to Rav Salavechik's classic note in his article on uh, on the footnote on on Gerus. So. The bottom line is Rabbi Yaakov Ettinger agreed that this person should have kept Shabbos. He agreed with Chachma Yerushalayim against Rav Shalama. But he said, however, I have another suggestion to make. Because I think, says Rabbi Yaakov Ettinger, that there's a distinction between a Jew keeping Shabbos and a guy, guy's uh, Easter to fulfill Shabbos. A Jew must must keep Shabbos by not doing the Lamatas Malachas. But a guy is not allowed to rest on Shabbos. It doesn't mean necessarily the Lamatas Malachas. It means he should not have a day of rest. And therefore, if he would do something which, inqu- which entails great effort, but does not contravene one of the 39 Malachas, he might have both worlds together. He might keep Shabbos like a Jew, but be Michal Shabbos like a guy. So he said, for example, if you really disagree, if Rav Ashalama wants to keep his opinion, perhaps the best thing would be for him to do would be to move some heavy furniture or something in the house. 
in a Rishus Hayachid, something that requires great effort, but does not involve one of the 39 Malachas, and therefore you could have both worlds. This topic of having both worlds, of living a life of a Jew and not, and keeping Shabbos at the same time on the same Shabbos, living like a guy has many solutions have been, have been suggested for this, uh, dilemma. The, um, the, uh, edition of Rabbi Horowitz has a whole collection of sources that dealt with his Shuva, ideas that they suggested. One of them is famous that uh, the original question was discussed about Avram Avinu. Since Avram Avinu was not really a Jew before Matan Torah, but nevertheless he kept Torah mitzvahs, the question was always asked, how he kept Shabbos. And one of the answers was, there are many, many answers. One of the answers was, he wore, sha- he wore tzitzes in, in the public domain on Shabbos. Now, a Jew who is mechuyev and tzitzis is allowed to wear the strings attached because they're part of the beged. The mitzvah of tzitzis makes it part of the beged. Since a non-Jew is not involved in the mitzvah of tzitzis, then the tzitzis become an attachment to his beged, which are a form of carrying on Shabbos. They're not considered part of the beged. So if he would wear tzitzis in Rishos HaRabim, he would also would be mekayim Shabbos like a Jew, but be mechal Shabbos like a guy. Another issue that also had been raised and was very well known relates to a tshuva that variations of this question had been asked many times. In fact, we discussed it recently in the broadcast on a tshuva of Noda Bihuda. But here he discusses a terrible story. Maase Nora occurred in a certain village where, uh, in, in Hungary. A certain person came to a house where a woman was living with her family and the husband was away for business. And this man asked if he could stay over in the, in the house. And the woman saw that she did have a maid and she had children in the house, so she let him stay in the house. The whole week he behaved in a way that showed pure asceticism. He hardly ate anything, he hardly drank anything, he learned all the time, he cried all night, taking chatzos. Friday night, when everybody else had gone to sleep, the uh, the maids, the children had all left. So this person came to the woman and told her that he is no less than Eliyahu Anavi. And he travels around the world in order to bring about Mashiach ben Yosef. And how would he, Mishach ben David, and how would he do this? He, he has to sire a child that would be Mashiach, but he needs, and he said, this woman is the Tzitkanis who is capable of bearing such a child. But her husband is not deserving of being the father, so therefore he volunteered to be the father. He also told her that I'll prove to you that everything I'm saying is true, that in a few days, You'll open up the chest in your room and you'll see there's a tremendous amount of money there, but you can't open it up before Tuesday. The woman, in her sim- at least the way she tells the story, in her simplicity, in her naivete, she listened to him and she slept with him. Tuesday, she wrote to her husband uh, right away that you should come home quickly because we have a lot of money, you don't have to go work. 
And on Tuesday, she opened the box, and behold, there's nothing there. And then she realized that she had been fooled and tricked, and she told her husband the whole terrible story. And she did not mean to rebel against him. She didn't mean to do anything bad. She had kavanah l'shem shamayim. And she said the fellow was really repulsive, but nevertheless, l'shem shamayim, she felt she did what she should have done. <coughs> the question was asked to Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger. Now, we have recently discussed chuvas of women that committed adultery to save their husband. Here, Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger begins by saying it's very difficult to to find a, a reason to be matir. Because if a woman thinks that it's mutter to commit adultery, it's still usher, uh, as the Maharik explained in his famous chuva quoted by the Ramah. But then he said, maybe you don't have to believe her. Because sometimes a woman would lie in order to get a get or something like that. So he said, in this particular case, that seems very problematic because she wants to stay married. She's looking for a heter. Also, in such a, in this particular case, we'll call, there was circumstantial evidence that proved that she was telling the truth. But the trouble is, the husband also believes in her. In the case where the husband believes her, so there's no issue if she's telling the truth or not. When a husband believes his wife that she committed adultery, so it's a concept of shavya nafshech He considered it usher, and therefore he has to divorce her. However, Rabbi Yaakov Ettinger tried to find a place to be makil. And he said, in all these cases, she, that the Marik discussed, <coughs> she knew she was doing something wrong. Here, she didn't think she was doing anything wrong, wrong at all. She did not mean to have any hana from this. She felt she was doing a mitzvah. How could this be called mi'ila bebao? How could this be called begida? When I discussed the other cases, I also mentioned, it seems to me strange, and Elder Buda did raise the, the issue, that a woman who, whose intention by committing adultery is to save her husband, or in this particular case, she felt it was a mitzvah to save Klai Yisrael. So therefore, Rabbi Yaakov Etnika said, I find a place to be, to be makil here, and I would say that this might be considered onus gummer. However, he says, as is customary among the great gedolim, who were very, very modest, I do not want you to rely on my psak unless two other gedolim agree with me. I will be the third, because I think, especially in this case where she was a fine Jewish woman, she had children, and he asked to uh, other people to confirm his decision. The uh, footnotes of the uh, of the edition of the Binyan Sion has a number of sources that deal with this question. And as late as the Swedish, the great uh, Godel, uh, Rabbi Chiyo Yaakov Weinberg, also discussed this issue. And by the way, Rabbi Chiyo Yaakov Weinberg, of course, wrote very positively about the German Gedolim who protected Judaism and uh, specifically talked about our Mechaber, Rabbi Yaakov Antlinger. One of the 
interesting short shuvos of the of the of the Archaner, of the Binyan Sion is a question how to be Mikabal Shabbos, how to be Mikabal Tanis on Shabbos. Let's say a person wants to fast on Friday. I'm sorry, a person wants to fast on Sunday. So we know that you have to be Mikabal Tanis before the fast. But it seems to be Mikabal Tanis on Friday is too far removed. Mikabal Tanis on Shabbos seems problematic. So, what should he do? So, Rabbi Yaakov Atlinker said that it seems to me that you cannot be Mikabal Tanis on Friday. You have to be Mikabal Tanis on Shabbos. And he said that you found in the Rishonim, that say you can be mekabotanis at Elokai Nitzar. On Shabbos, he says you mekabotanis at Elokai Nitzar. So he explains why. He said because the real custom was to accept the Tanis at Shema Koleinu. Since Shabbos at Mincha, you don't say Shema Koleinu. Therefore, the Kabbalah's Tanis should be done at Elokai Nitzar. And he says this very simply. By the way, the, the volume of Shailot to Tshuvot of Binyan my original edition is a rational, a ra- rather uh, short, uh, thin edition. It has in it uh, 300 Tshuvas. He wrote very short Tshuvas. Here also, this Tshuva is quite short. He just says, you're Mechabotinus on Shabbos. He did not raise the issue, is this considered a problem at all because of Hachana from Shabbos to Chol? He didn't seem to raise the issue at all, and one might really wonder what, you know, why is it really permitted? On the other hand, what's the alternative? You can't be Mechabal Tainus on Friday because it's too far removed. And the custom is to Mechabal Shabbos at Mincha, not at Mariv. Maybe one could discuss that. Why can't you really be Mechabal Tainus at, at Mariv? If the idea is to Mechabal Tainus before the, to Mechabal the Tainus before the Tainus, why is it that we do it at Mincha. Why can't we do it by Mariv? Is the night considered part of the Tanis? Even though you don't fast at night, you only fast in the daytime? That's what Rav Salavechik thought in connection with the Tanias, the four Tanias, uh, the, actually the three, Shavasam Tamas, Asarbatevas, Sam Gedalia, the Rav really thought that as a Tanis, it starts the night before, even though we don't eat. We don't fast, then we eat until the morning, but it's considered Tanis at night. But if that's true, so maybe... That's the reason we accept Tanis at Mincha. But we could argue maybe in this particular case we'd be allowed to make Tanis at Mariv because in Mincha does seem to be problematic. The discussion of uh, Rabbi Yaakov Ettinger was predicated by the fact that he but he said he didn't really see uh, Poskim discussing this issue and therefore he suggested what he suggested. One of the interesting questions, of course, out of the re- Covered for Rabbi Yaakov Ettinger, I'll try to discuss it in language that he would approve of in this particular case. But he was asked, are you allowed to mention the name of Hashem in a foreign language? He says, Belashen Ashkenaz, which I would assume means German. Rabbi Yaakov Ettinger was asked, can you say the name of a Kaddish Baruch Hu in a foreign language? He said 
that I am particularly meticulous about this and my family, not to mention the name of Hashem, even in foreign language. He does quote a shach that says the name is not Kodesh, a name in what we call Loazit, a foreign language, is not Kodesh Yitzchol. And he proved it from the fact that there's no Easter to erase a name that's written in Loazit. So the Aruch Lanair said, I think by erasing there's a difference. The erasing is Aser to erase Lotasun King Lashem Alokecha. The, to erase the name of Hashem is only a name that was written by Kedusha. But even the name of Hashem, if it was written without Kedusha, most Paskim think you are allowed to erase it. And therefore, a name that's written in Loazit is considered written as Chol. <coughs> but it's the name of the name of Hashem. So therefore, it's better to be Machmir and not mention the name of Hashem in a foreign language. He also points out that obviously the Shem Hashem in a foreign language is considered Shem Hashem. Because otherwise, how could it be that we know certain things can be said in any language? Brachas, Birchas HaMazan, Tefillah, Kriyashma can be said in any language. But if you have to mention the name of Hashem, a bracha without the name of Hashem is not a bracha, so how could you possibly do that? He said, perhaps one could argue that the Torah said you can say in any language. He says, nevertheless, if the Torah said it's included in the concept of Vibirachta, Hashem Alakacha, that is the name of Hashem, that is a name of Hashem. In, he also says, whenever you have a Suffolk Brachas Lahakel, and not make the Bracha, why don't you just make the Bracha in, 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 in a foreign language? So he thinks that you see from here that the name in a foreign language should be considered Shem Hashem, and one should be careful to mention Shem Hashem Levatala. And he says, because it's dangerous, it's a great punishment. And he uses a phrase that's interesting, Chamira Sakanta Misura. The Sakana is great in such a case. It's even greater than danger. So therefore, it's, the, the danger is greater than the Isser. So therefore, he would really suggest not to mention the name of Hashem in a foreign language. Again, one could discuss, when you say the shame, you could say Kriyashma in any language. So let's say you translate V'hafta is you should love. As Hashem Elokecha, I'm really not sure how anybody would translate Hashem Elokecha. Perhaps even the translation would only be a translation without proper names. But proper names cannot be translated. They must be said in Hebrew. Rabbi Yaakov Ethinger assumed the proper names of Hashem Elokecha could be translated into Loazit, and you could be Yotzei Kriyashva, which proves that they have the name of Hashem. I'm not so convinced <coughs> that a person can actually translate a proper name. And therefore, the proof from Kriyashma that you're allowed to say Kriyashma and Loazit might not necessarily be a proof. Again, this Rav Harvitz, in a tremendous uh, array of Bikiyas, quotes many achronim that discuss this. He mentions among them the Tzitz Eliezer, the Prima Garden, the Beis Yitzchak, Zichron Yehuda, Rialash, really his Bikiyas in quoting Tshuvas that discuss this, these issues is very, very helpful. People who really want to delve into the issues that we've discussed.